Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I chatted with our wonderful colleague, Jennifer Richter. Jen is jointly appointed between the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the School of Social Transformation. Her work focuses on intergenerational justice and specifically environmental justice. She thinks about energy and energy transitions and has particular expertise in the area of nuclear waste. We have been trying to have Jennifer on the podcast, um, as you'll learn in a moment when we dig in, since before there was a podcast. And so we were so excited that we could finally get our calendars to align the right way. Um, Our conversation focused you know, a little bit far and wide, as they often do. And I hope that you enjoy it. Before we get started, as always, we're so glad that you're listening to the Future Out Loud podcast, and we would be also so glad if you would let your friends and colleagues know about the Future Out Loud podcast. You can tell them that they can find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Google Play, on Stitcher, uh, wherever one finds fine podcasts. And you can let us know what you think about the Future Out Loud podcast. Let us know if there are people that you think we should bring on as guests. You can tweet at us at Future Out Loud, or you can find us on Facebook also at Future Out Loud. Uh, As always, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the conversation with Jen Richter. Hi. Hello. (laughs) Hi, Andrew. Hi, Heather. So, Jennifer Richter, we're so excited to have you. And, um, People who are listening to the podcast should know that we've been trying to have you on the podcast since before there was a podcast, (laughs) and it's only taken us this long to to have you with us, so I'm so excited. So uber in demand. Right. You are. I do. I work with intergenerational justice, so that's that's good. Oh, perfect. Timely. Right. (laughs) Perfect. And you work in the space, as we like to say in academia, of um, energy and energy transitions, and you were just saying to us before we turned on the recorder uh, that you were at a breakfast about the Dakota Access Pipeline today. What's well, that all a, about? Well, I was at a breakfast that um, where the School of Sustainability hosted Winona LaDuke, who was mm-hmm. a very well-known indigenous environmental justice activist. Mm-hmm. And so she is from the White Earth Tribe in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And she was discussing her tribe's success with blocking Enbridge's uh, attempts to build an oil pipeline through their land. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to compare that experience, and Enbridge is still trying to build a pipeline, they just moved it a few miles. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're all gearing up to do it again, to resist that. And then comparing that with the, the struggles of the Standing Rock Sioux to get their rights recognized in the um, around the Dakota Access Pipeline. 
So, so you're thinking on very small, like very minor issues. Totally in, tiny. Geographically yeah, speaking, yeah. It's only two thousand miles. That's right. You know, nothing ever goes wrong with pipeline. Yeah. Never. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, so by the time this airs, the chances are the oil will be flowing through that well, pipeline. No. No. Right. Okay. All right. Because remember, we're talking about oil economies, mm. and there is actually very little impetus right now to pull that oil out because oil is not that expensive. Of course. That's right? true. So this is an interesting moment we find they can build a pipeline but right. who wants the oil coming out of that pipeline right and these are questions that have not been answered um you know i, I my field of, of focus is really environmental justice which brings in intergenerational justice interspecies justice these are questions that are never asked when we're talking about resource extraction mm -hmm. we just say we need the jobs we need the oil it's good for the economy but Period. we don't ask any more questions about what that means who is it good for who is it perhaps mm -hmm. not good for um, for how long of a time are we talking about here? Will the, the tar sands in North Dakota ever run out? And does that make the pipeline completely useless at that point? Right. So right. we don't talk about any of those kinds of issues. It just always stops that right now this is the right thing to do because this is what America does. So, and when you say we don't talk about any of these issues, obviously you are talking about these issues and there are people who are talking about these issues. So when you say we, do you refer to sort of mainstream political media? Is that... I think even they are very removed. Like if Standing Rock hadn't tried to close down the pipeline physically using their own bodies, we probably wouldn't be talking about this. Mm -hmm. okay. But there was a certain moment with the Keystone XL pipeline where we had an administration that was willing to acknowledge that there might be negatives associated with this pipeline, that we as a democracy need to address those, acknowledge those, and think about those up front. With a sudden shift in administration, obviously that is not in their interest whatsoever. Mm -hmm. right. And so I don't think it's even the mainstream media. I think we have um, energy transfer partners, and then you have uh, the present administration, and they're both very invested in making sure that those things do not become part of the conversation. Right? We oh. do not think about long-term effects. We do not think about whether or not this is actually good for the economy. We don't get specific about jobs and numbers. We don't think about the larger oil economy that's driving this. It's just on autopilot. It's so, so presumably it's just short-term economic gain. They can mm -hmm. see dollars at the end of the pipeline. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you think about utilities, they think 10 to 20 years ahead, mm -hmm. which is, mm -hmm. we, in a capitalist economy, we think that's pretty far. For Native Americans, <laughs> this is always very interesting, there's, mm -hmm. there's this, a, a thought that goes through some of these communities that says, you know, we predate capitalism, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we will probably be here once capitalism has eaten everything and all of you people right. to death. Right. We will survive because we're not totally bought into that system. And it's hard not to acknowledge the wisdom of that. Right, <laughs> right. That too. So how does this, how does one operationalize this conversation, I guess, in the context of the sort of prevailing capital, conventional, and I'm saying wisdom in air quotes mm. because I think that... Well, it's a logic. Applying it's a logic the term system. wisdom to yeah. convent to But capitalism <laughs> has a very clear logic to it. Uh -huh. And the, the benefits of capitalism are that it's ahistorical, mm -hmm. right? It does not have... It's, it's an economic system. It's not a political system. Mm -hmm. right, it's at right. the center of our political system, but we don't acknowledge that it's not the reigning logic of that system. We still have the Constitution. We still mm -hmm. have three bodies of power in the United States. We have the state system. But all of that is subsumed to this idea of jobs and economy. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the, the major, very clever divisions in there. So I think it is part of that, um, how do you challenge that? Mm -hmm. Part of it is relocalizing a lot of these issues. So who cares about North Dakota? Who cares about the Standing Rock Sioux? 
Turns out a lot of people, a mm-hmm. lot of people really care because they see themselves in that position too. Okay. Like tribes in Minnesota see themselves there, tribes in South Dakota, sure. um, thinking about Arizona specifically, mm-hmm. uh, thinking a lot about coalition building. So it's hard for us to go up to North Dakota and spend a lot of time at the Standing Rock Sioux camp. And yet we have an interesting issue just on our border, mm-hmm. right? So we are, uh, the federal government has put out the bid for the border wall. Five hundred companies have mm-hmm. put in, are planning on putting in bids for that. Mm-hmm. The language is really fascinating, right? It should be of an imposing height, but no less than 16 feet. Should be aesthetically pleasing on the north side of the wall. Mm-hmm. Like the on the north yeah, side. Yeah. Yes. Nobody cares about the southern side, apparently. No one knows who the laborers are going to be for this. So the idea that, well, what does the border wall have to do with Standing Rock? Mm-hmm. Right? It turns out everything. Right? So if you ask people who had gone to Standing Rock, if you ask Standing Rock to come to the border to Hona Odom Nation, just mm-hmm. kind of cut them right in half, um, I think a lot of people in Arizona would flock to that, would come out mm-hmm. and support that. People from New Mexico, people from Texas, people from California. It's, it's more of a regional issue at mm-hmm. that point rather than a national issue. Mm-hmm. But the regional issue becomes the national issue right, too. Right, right. Uh, but this seems to be sort of part of the strategy of divide and conquer. Exactly. You tell people mm-hmm. that it's only a small group of people that are affected and therefore it's okay. But mm-hmm. when you've got a lot of those communities, it's obvious. Well, and it's not okay anyway. Movement, right? Right. That's yeah. what the yeah. grassroots is all about, is saying yes. you're not alone. Yes. You're not alone. You're not, don't let them divide us. Let's think about this as a larger systemic issue. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when you start to peel away the layers of these isolated groups and see the system that's undergirding the continual and you know, the exploitation is predicated on that division, yeah. that's the dangerous thing, I think, for a lot of these it, larger groups. It, it also seems to be very much predicated on whose idea of value is is prevalent. So you've got the value... And the value more narrow you keep that value, right. the yes. to justify it. Right? That, that's exactly it. So I mean, um, you've obviously got the, the social value, which is being discounted here, but also the, the environmental value as well. The, the really and the cultural pre- value. And the, yeah. Like, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. So then it, it raises the question, how do you actually bring these different aspects of value into that conversation when it comes to hard-headed decision-making? Right. And it is difficult. Yeah. Um, I think coalition building is one of the, the strongest things. I know when I teach, I teach about, um, for instance, the Resolution Copper Mine in Oak Flats, along with Standing Rock along with the proposed 202 expansion and the Gila River Indian community, along with Flint, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Right? Like mm-hmm. what, what, happened, what ties these communities together? Mm-hmm. And it's systematic marginalization that allows the systematic exploitation, that allows for the systematic avoidance mm-hmm. right. of these particular questions. But at some point, and this is what I love about what I do, and I think it's a larger political project that I've apparently devoted my life to. Mm. <laughs> and coming from the nuclear field, I, used to, you know, I still study nuclear waste policy. That is inherently, and everyone acknowledges it, it's an inherently intergenerational issue. Yeah. But we don't think about Flint as an intergenerational issue. Right. Except you think about children who are drinking uh, water that's been lead, poisoned with yeah. lead, it's and going to affect your IQ levels. Of course it is, yes. That will mm-hmm. become a systemic societal issue. Yes. Like my kids will have to take care of those kids. Right. But I think right. surely that intergenerational um, perspective also goes to culture as well. So mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking of communities where, I take mining communities for instance, mm-hmm. where mining has been shut down mm-hmm. and you have one generation coming up with the, the attitudes and perspectives of their, their parents and then they pass them down to their children. Right. So then that's that, that sort of cultural memory mm-hmm. that colors everything that comes after it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think about uh, the people in superstition, mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, in Superior, mm-hmm. in, uh, Arizona. They're a mining community. They've been copper mining. If you drive down, I just drove last weekend from um, Superior down to uh, Hayden, where there's that giant mine, the Asarco mines down there. Um, these are 
culturally, mm-hmm. these are communities that are used to a boom and bust economy, mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. right? And they're abutting the San Carlos Apache, who have dealt with also that systemic sort of marginalization mm-hmm. there community, there's not a lot of economic options, and yet they realize that once Rio Tinto has come through and taken, this is one of the largest copper mines ever, Mm -hmm. right? And the whole thing is predicated on taking all the copper out and letting everything on top subside, Mm -hmm. right? So everything will collapse inside of that, that giant um, chasm, mm-hmm. and it's it's unfathomable. We won't understand it until we see it, and right. that's right. what makes it so effective to ignore it. And then the way they're selling it to people in superior like it's what your family has done. This is your cultural legacy. One more push, right? right? One more wow. push, and you're asking. You want to ask people in superior. So what happens after this push? Mm-hmm. Right. So this was great for your generation. This 20 years will probably be economically good. What happens after? There right. will literally be nothing left. Right. Wow. So what are you hoping to do here? And San Carlos can't move. <laughs> That's right. their reservation. Yeah. Um, Superior hasn't moved, right? This is still a, a town that That's right. has a mining festival just last weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's a really interesting... Um, but you don't want to get into that false dichotomy of we need jobs, but we want our culture right. value. So right, yeah. That, again, is superimposed by different groups. So, so that system is better than yours. So that's what I was going to ask you, because I can imagine there are some people listening to this that, that will think, well, that sounds to be very anti-industry, mm-hmm. and yet people need um, manufacturing industries, mining industries, mm-hmm. in order to have jobs, in order to have quality mm-hmm. of life. So how do you reconcile the two? I think the important thing is to ask people their expectations. Right. Like, you, you want this that's totally understandable, but what do you think is going to happen next? Mm-hmm. Like, if, is there any way to put pressure on Rio Tinto, on the industry itself, to put in more protections for the right. environment, to scale things back, to so, have so a this 50 year plan rather? I mean, let's think about this in the nuclear waste aspect. Mm. What's the 100 year plan here? What's yep. the, what happens when you are dead and gone? Do you really just not care anymore? And well, I think a lot of people, some may say yes, but if they have children, yep. they have grandchildren, if they plan on having children, the answer changes a bit from that too. Like right, right. I think a lot of people, when they worked in the uranium industry, for instance, they were okay taking on that risk for themselves. Mm-hmm. When the birth defects started, mm-hmm. they were like, no, this is not what we traded away. I can trade away my life, right. so yeah. money, yes. but I will not trade my children. So I don't know very much, which is to say anything, about the sort of official policies that are in place around nuclear waste. Mm-hmm. Um, is there is there a viable 100-year plan? Like, what is that forecasting and sort of generational responsibility mm-hmm. in the that rulemaking? Or is there nothing in there? And does this then call into question the maybe a societal uh, structure or expectation that scientists, engineers, technologists <coughs> sort of bracket their professional right. work and that they must not inflect culture mm-hmm. in their work. This is why I love nuclear. Because mm-hmm. everything that they, they want to say, it's just as interesting to look at what they're trying to not say. Mm-hmm. So the assumption, so we didn't start the nuclear project in the United States going, well, what, what are we going to do about the waste? Mm-hmm. Right? We wanted bombs. Mm-hmm. We created a a system with our reactors that we can enrich them to 10%, 20%, what have you, for a nuclear power plant, enrich them to 90%, use mm-hmm. them in for weapons making. 
And that was the major goal in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. By the 70s and 80s, we're starting to go, well, what do we do about the waste? So as early as the 1950s, National Academy of Sciences had put out a report saying, well, geologic repositories, that's probably going to be the safest way. Mm -hmm. And seven years later, we're still trying to look for that geologic repository. Wow. Yep. Yeah. And what I love about it is that the EPA mandated to the Department of Energy, whatever site you build, it's got to be marked for 10,000 years. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right? 10,000 years. Such an arbitrary number. Right. Because 10,000, if you're talking about things that are toxic to the, or, you know, unpredictably going to react with human ecosystems and natural ecosystems for over 2 million years, what the hell is 10,000 years going to get You're right, right. Right? And yet 10,000 is enough that we're not thinking about the very logical outcome, which is that the United States will not exist at that point. Right. And so we're trying to create a marker system that says to people, this is dangerous, don't dig, don't drill, don't do agriculture here. Mm -hmm. Super complicated message for a species that has like literally had language for 40,000 years. Right, right, right. right. So, and we're trying to forecast this 10,000 years, how will people communicate with each other? So the idea of dig, big hole, put stuff in, bury it, stick a marker on top, mm -hmm. is literally as sophisticated as we can get, mm -hmm. because any other system would be really complex. And we can't deal with the political implications of reprocessing for the United States right now. Mm -hmm. It's actually too expensive to do that. No company wants to take that on. Mm -hmm. Federal government has been promising since the Nuclear Waste Policy Act in 1982, amended in 1987, amended again, um, that they would have Yucca Mountain. Mm -hmm. And that was all your eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. Congressionally, we are only allowed to look at Yucca Mountain. So you designate the space, then you're stuck with trying to make sure that the space fits the requirements, which we don't actually know because no one's done this before. Right? So it's a giant experiment from top to, to bottom. And then I love the way that science is expected to provide certainty for those 10,000 years. And scientists mm -hmm. are like, but that's not what we do. Right. We don't, right. We don't right. like legislate sites to hold specific substance for 10,000 years. We can right. tell you what it's like right now. Yeah. We can tell you what it's like in the past. We can tell you generally what we think might happen. But it's different from a hydrologist to a seismologist to a geomorphologist. Mm -hmm. You know, They found a fault line two miles from Yucca. But how do you guarantee that it's not Well, I was going to say, so... Even in terms of projecting forwards, we can have the models, but those models will always have, if nothing else, statistical uncertainty. So exactly. you can may, maybe mm -hmm. say, according to our models, there's a 50, 60, 70% chance mm -hmm. of integrity. Mm -hmm. But statistics say you've always got that possibility of something Absolutely. going wrong. Yeah, mm -hmm. you're asking science for certainty, and they're not an insurance company that's going to guarantee a payout. If sure, but, but, wrong, but right? it's not <laughs> even the scientists, it's the universe that exactly. doesn't guarantee. Exactly, certainty. right. Yes. The Earth is. I love it because the more we learn about the Earth's ecology, the, realize, the more we realize how stochastic it is. Right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that things that we even know, we can know things 150 million years ago, doesn't mean they'll be the same in 150 right. million years. Right. And that's literally the premise under the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant in near Carlsbad, New Mexico, where we do hold nuclear waste from the military. Mm -hmm. And there's literally, uh, you know, they give out these little baggies with the salt in them that say, um, from the Permian salt bed, 165 million years old. <laughs> and the assumption is that it will be the same in 165 million years. Right, but, right. Yeah, and who's going to call them on that? <laughs> so right, so right. We're, we're still struggling with this with Yucca Mountain in the mm -hmm. States. Um, how are other countries dealing with this? Well, uh, it's very interesting. So um, Sweden and I believe Finland both have repositories under construction. Mm -hmm. And people are like, mm -hmm. why can't we be more like them? I mean, these are countries of five to seven million people. Right, right. They do not have the state system. So this, the, the federal government in those countries went directly to communities and mm -hmm. said, how would you feel about this? Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, I don't feel great. And government said, what can we do mm -hmm. to make you feel better about this? Um, they're also using a different kind of, they have a, a much, they're using granite for some mm -hmm. of those. So okay. they don't have the same geologic issues that a mm -hmm. Yucca has or that WIP has. Um, France does some reprocessing. Um, but they also don't have a permanent repository. Right. Turns out people really don't like the word permanent. Mm -hmm. like this is where people 
get very testy about that. Japan is having another issue. They're looking for a repository, obviously, for the issues with Fukushima. And yep. um, because they trust in that system has already been so eroded, there's very few communities that are willing to even consider that, even if they are nuclear communities. Mm -hmm. Right. And do you go with a community that's more comfortable with nuclear because they grew up with nuclear power plants? Mm -hmm. Or do you go with a community that's in the right geology? And then with the fear that they may feel like they're being victimized or targeted. Um, so it's really interesting how people reconcile themselves or not with mm -hmm. a project like that. Mm. And, and much more than economics, like patriotism is a really yeah. strong call for that. Like, we produce this, we have to do something with it. Answer the call. So, so mm -hmm. actually now we have quite an ironic circling back mm -hmm. to oil pipelines, mm -hmm. where the things that really drive those conversations are what people deeply value. Mm -hmm. Except in the case of nuclear, it's a, not in my backyard because you're impinging on things that I really value. Right. That doesn't seem to work when it comes to Native Americans and oil folk for some reason, right. with the bigger community. Yes. Right, and partly the nuclear industry has had a problem because we have been keeping nuclear waste on site right. and mm -hmm. nuclear reactors. Mm -hmm. and. There's always a sense of, well, something's going to go wrong, so we've got to move it. But it's been 70 years since that sense <laughs> yeah. has been right, right. Yeah. And nothing has actually gone terribly wrong yet. So there's arguments for just keeping it where it is. It's I'm much safer than trying to get it on trucks or trains and then move it to one local okay. centralized site. Can you even site. imagine? Well, that's the problem. People are imagining. Yeah. Yes. There's a whole nuclear waste transportation board that deals with this question all the time. Right. How do you convince a community that does not benefit that this should go through their... Community. Well, I mean, I haven't seen one of these recently, but you have these well-publicized crash tests mm -hmm. where you sort of right. have these containers and right. try and sort of exert the, the, the worst possible conditions right. on it to see whether it cracks. And that's intriguing, too. I was at a, a meeting recently where, again, you know, somebody showed those and, and a person from Nevada raised his hand and said, but those aren't the actual casts that you're using, right? Those are older versions that were never actually produced. And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, but, you know, the principle's the same. Right, <laughs> oh, right. Wow. But we're not working on principle, right? We're mm. working on now you have an experiment that needs to be proven. Yes. And that's that puts us squarely back in the realm of science, and people want evidence when it comes to science. Yeah. So it's a very interesting set of paradoxes that you're trying to deal with. But is this a situation where... We really have to, you know, one of the things Andrew does very well is effective science communication. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like this is one of those cases and really a, a poignant and a very high stakes case where maybe scientists aren't doing such a good job of communicating what it is that they know and they don't know and what they can and cannot do. Well, I, I think it's the responsibility here isn't on scientists. Like, I think they've done what they can with educating the public. And there is a very popular um, motif that runs the nuclear industry. If only the public knew how safe nuclear is, they mm -hmm. would be so right. much more supportive of it. Mm -hmm. And it's not the public that's stopping nuclear endeavors, mm -hmm. right? It's the, it's the actual economics of energy production. The federal government has been trying to offer subsidies mm -hmm. and through the Obama administration, I assume it will go forward to the Trump administration. Utilities won't bite. Why put a 10-year upfront investment for something that will take at least 10 years to build? Mm -hmm. usually costs several billion dollars, 10 to 12 billion dollars. We have four mm -hmm. under construction, five under construction in the United States right now. They're already behind schedule. They're mm -hmm. over budget again. Mm -hmm. Literally, the only plant that's ever been built on time and to budget was 1953 Shipping Port, Pennsylvania, the very mm -hmm. first one. Uh -huh. Nothing else has come close. Um, and so utilities won't, they just simply won't invest in nuclear. 
not when natural gas is hanging out there. Okay. Much easier right. to access, fewer regulations. And cheap, bringing us back to the Because of the lack of regulations, right? We don't yeah. have the water, we don't have the air testing for it. So, right. And right. the nuclear industry is very correct in saying it's not fair to compare us to fracking when there's no, there's not the same there's amount no of that's, that's right, yes, yeah. And so they'd be wise to invest in trying to make sure people know how dangerous <laughs> fracking can be, which is just ironic, right? It, this is, yeah. again, we think the federal government should be the one distributing information. So you run into that issue where people just don't trust yeah. mm -hmm. Department of Energy. And, and, and to be fair, when it comes to nuclear, so if you do look at the science, you do look at the evidence, we can build a, well, I was going to say a very safe operating nuclear mm -hmm. power plant, but it comes back to the waste issue. Mm -hmm. We don't mm -hmm. have a plan for dealing with the waste products. Cycle, from right. that. That's right. exactly it, yes. Right, yeah. and we have a once-through cycle. We've always had to deal with that. Um, so you're building you're building up more and more waste, and yet right. there's no quote unquote solution for it. And yes. that's you know it'll be interesting to see what happens now because Yucca Mountain's back on the table was you know, zeroed out in uh, 2008, and the Obama administration's you know, circling back again eight years later. Um, but man, this is just not something you want to deal with every four years of trying to so make it out and put it in. What is the solution? That, that's so, not fair. Yeah, there so is no solution. <laughs> but but what, what, is the path, what are the pathways for What are things that, want, yes. that you can do? I would do? say, first and foremost, we have to stop thinking in solutionist. It, yeah. Yes. Which is why I pulled back. Right? Yes. Right? And this is something I, I you know, and, and, and I have to yeah. interject and say, I really don't like that term solutionist, but you're allowed to use it. Thank you. I appreciate it. What we're talking about is actually perpetual management. Right. right? Mm -hmm. And that is not nearly as sexy as a solution, I know. No. But it is something that then allows every, so in 50 years, what will Americans think about nuclear waste? Will it be exactly what we're thinking right now, or will it be something different? And will they have the opportunity within our political system, the system of governance, to be able to address their new values? Like, think about how much environmental values have changed in the United States over right. 50 years, mm -hmm. 100 years, 150 years. And we're only, and I'm just talking 50 years at a time, right? Not yeah. even 10,000 years at a time is what we probably should be talking about. This gets me into the issue of why are we producing energy that in our the time frames that we think of, we literally cannot imagine right. what we're mm -hmm. going to do with it. And we're like, just go ahead with it. Mm -hmm. So that's one issue. How do we respect that other generations may not have the same attitudes mm -hmm. as we do? They might not even be using nuclear energy in 50 to 100 years, right. and yet they will deal with that waste forever. So how do you prepare people for the project of perpetual management? Mm -hmm. Which, again, mm -hmm. is something that the nuclear industry is very familiar with. The Cold War industries are very familiar with. Mm -hmm. We've been perpetually managing things just not very well because mm -hmm. we thought there would be a final, a, a permanent solution. That right, right, this. which is very um, clearly a fallacy. Mm -hmm. So if we let go of that, yes. maybe we do find one someday, but if we mm -hmm. let go of it for now and think about alternatives for managing this waste and managing people's expectations right. yeah. of what science can do, I think there's a really cool project in here about asking people to have more of a connection with science and technology policy. Mm -hmm. yep. And this would be a great place to say, hey, America, we haven't been really interested in talking to you about science for a long time. Now's the time. I don't know if we should start with nuclear waste. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of inroads here about energy production. Yes. Like, what kind of energy system are we imagining we're going to be using in 50 years, in 100 years, in 150 years? Do you think it will be coal and nuclear still? Mm -hmm. Or be more fracking? Will it be solar? What, what are we thinking? And, and of course, that allows you to come up with the transition plan. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where do we want to be? And mm. a lot of states have you know, renewable mm -hmm. portfolio standards or efficiency standards. Um, but we, we still have a, a federal system now that's going back to trying to push mm -hmm. coal forward right. or um, systems that just economically, environmentally are not as promoted or not as easy for utilities to invest in yep. as they were. They can't rationalize it yeah. based on the changing collective values of our country.
Right. And I think that's really fascinating because there's always a lot of tension in there, but the general trend seems to be solar is getting really cheap. Natural gas is really cheap. Mm -hmm. Why would you invest in coal and nuclear? Mm -hmm. Well, and that's where capitalism gets yeah. you every time. Right? Exactly. Right. Right. That's right. That's to go right. back to that system, it does like transitions. It does like to go towards something else. And mm -hmm. you can artificially suppress that by saying we will just lift all the environmental regulations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in but a but democracy, impetus, that will yes. come back to you again, too, in the terms of human health care and environmental care. Yep. That's right. Like we went through this in the 1970s when you can set rivers on fire. It turns out people don't like that. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. So Why wouldn't you want to set a river right? on and fire? So do we have to go back to a, like a Love Canal or a, you know something like Cuyahoga sort of situation? Which of course is what that. we seem to be heading at it's the moment. And so you see the cycle repeating. Yeah, yeah. as an environmental justice person, that is the most depressing thing. Like, do we really have to sacrifice children's health to get people to be aware that the environment and their bodies are connected? Yeah. Oh, okay. I guess we. I do. guess we. I guess we do. So we that's do. the project that's moving the project. forward. Wow. Well, on that super happy note. <laughs> Um, Can I just say, to study environmental <laughs> justice is to get your heart broken a hundred times a day. Oh. And oh. you have to find some way to mend it back together so you can just go home and not just cry all night. Right? That's the Perfect. The so if quest. that doesn't just <laughs> swell the graduate programs right, so in environmental justice, <laughs> come on down. The crying couch in my office, it'll be great. <laughs> yeah, but you have plants, too. And so I have there little green that. plants. There's a little bit of nature left. That's right. It's great. <laughs> it's great. Well, I think this is obviously we barely scratched the mm. surface and I think that you know we're recording this in what month are we in March 2017 mm. and um, the news cycle is you know turning every seven minutes as mm. it does these days and I think there's about to be so much more information feeding into this story um, that I hope you will come back and talk to us again so Absolutely. we can scratch just a little bit further. I was trying to talk as fast as I could but there's just so much to say. There's so much to say. Alright, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank thanks you. for coming. For more where that came from, including our undergraduate and graduate programs, check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Mark Van Hare created our music. Ana Lopez is our production assistant. Please subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please tell your friends and let us know what you think on Facebook and Twitter.